and say, in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for permitting us to, to meet again and offer ourselves to you and to the Holy Spirit to learn the essence of the book of Deuteronomy and the four major time periods of Old Testament history because they worked together and it was as a result of some of the events in the last two of these time periods that Deuteronomy came about and was finished uh, when it really was in about the 5th century. So we thank you for this time together and we ask your blessing on our efforts tonight and as we go forward in the future so that we as individuals don't fall into the same trap that many of the people of that time period did. So we thank you and praise you in all things in Jesus' name. <coughs> I'd like to again, and this is kind of a refresher, but it's necessary uh, to really talk about the four time periods of Old Testament history. Because, and please kind of let this sink in. Because when you know about the four time periods, and you don't really have to know the exact dates, but realize that they are. And if you have any problems, go to the first and second chapter of Matthew, and you'll see that they are listed there, perhaps not perhaps in the most correct order, but nevertheless they are listed there. The first time period is from the call of Abraham um, around the year 2000 B.C., okay, through or up to the time of Moses. And that included uh, Abraham and his family migrating from the land of Ur to what is now Palestine or Israel today. And that took a lot of courage and faith in God to make that change because he picked up not only himself and his wife and his two sons, well, one son, let's say, as well as all his belongings and his servants, etc., etc., and moved to some place he had never even heard about. And, of course, that very fact is mentioned both in Paul's letters and in the letter of the Hebrew, letter to the Hebrews, where it says that God recognized the faith of Abraham in doing what was asked of him without any question and credited to him as faith. Okay. But during this 500-year time period, from Abraham to the time of Moses, there were no rules, there were no laws. Uh, they lived by their tribal customs, but the one thing that was predominant in their belief was the one true God. All right? Abraham and his family always kept that idea of a one true God as opposed to the surrounding nations and peoples uh, within whom they live who were sort of polytheistic or had no faith whatsoever. So you've got to keep that in mind. There was no circumcision, there was no Ten Commandments, 
Uh, there were no 613 Jewish laws. There were no priests of any kind. They just lived according to their tribal customs and traditions. All right. Now, after spending 400 and some odd years in Egypt, where they started out as guests of the Egyptian uh, pharaoh, and of course through uh, Jacob's son Joseph, and you can read all about that in the book of Genesis, then they became slaves. And it was the pharaoh, the subsequent pharaohs, uh, that thought that the Israelites, the Hebrew people, as they were often referred to because of their language, uh, were getting so numerous that it was feared that they might overrun uh, the Egyptians and take over the country. Well, that seems to be a, a very flimsy excuse, but that is what it is said and uh, sort of referred to. They became slaves, and they prayed to God uh, for relief. But it was really God who took and put the Israelite people, they were not called Jews at that time, the Israelite people into Egypt because, as you know, when families begin to expand and generations and generations come, they automatically start moving out. You can see that here where our families today rarely, rarely ever stay around the school and the home and the church that they originally belong to. They, they move out. And God didn't want that. God wanted the Jewish people to develop and keep their own customs and traditions and it was much easier to do that in Egypt. But now it was time to bring them back into their own country. Alright, so Moses comes on the scene and is asked to bring forth these people out of Egypt and return them to the promised land for God's reason. This is part of God's plan of salvation, which is extremely important to understand and see how it evolves over this 2,000 years of time. Okay. It was during this early part of the exodus of the Israelite people from Egypt heading towards the promised land that they incurred their first major breach of any covenant that God had made, first with Abraham, and now he is about to renew it with Moses. And that covenant was a promise of descendants, a promise of land, and a promise of God's protection. And so they are heading towards this second part, this promise of land, the promised land, and that's exactly uh, where the word comes from. It was part of God's promise or God's first covenant with the Israelite people. All right. And they breached that by this molten calf incident. You've all heard it that many times, I'm sure. But keep that in mind, that that was the first major breach. But there were three or four of those kinds of breaches of the covenant, which led up to, and I'll give you that when we get to the fourth one. All right. 
But Moses brings forth these people and eventually, after wandering in the desert for 40 years, as punishment for the molten calf incidents, not because they didn't know where they were going. Remember Jacob, if you read Exodus uh, or Genesis and Exodus, you'll see that Jacob, who was Abraham's grandson, and his family migrated to Egypt originally because of a famine. But they went back and forth two or three times, so they knew where they were going. And later on, during the time of Moses, it wasn't wandering in the desert because they didn't know where they were going. It was part of the punishment because of the golden calf incident. All right. But finally, they do get into the promised land. And they are scattered by tradition. They are scattered by uh, their own tribal identities to various parts of Israel. Right. And there we have them for another 500 years. So now we're talking uh, in the second major time period here from roughly uh, 1500 B.C. to 1000 B.C. during the time of David. But in that time, God gives them the Ten Commandments. Moses takes the Ten Commandments and adds a lot to it. Not all of the things that Moses added were intended to be laws on the same level as the Ten Commandments. For example, the dietary laws, the purity laws, and many of those kinds of laws, they were plain common sense, primarily for hygiene reasons. All right. Uh, yes, there were expansions of the Ten Commandments uh, that became devotional uh, rules and regulations, customs and traditions of the Jewish people, but not all the 613 laws. It is... Uh, let me see if I can give you a modern-day example. Um, our Thanksgiving celebration. All right? If you were to ask a stranger on the street on Thanksgiving Day where he was celebrating Thanksgiving dinner, that would not be an out-of-line question. Now, maybe if he's a homeless person, he might say, well, at the homeless shelter down the street or whatever. But everybody really knows what Thanksgiving Day is and how it's celebrated, and most people have the traditional foods, right? Well, that became a custom but not a law. But these people took those kinds of customs and made them laws. Okay. So that over a period of 500 years or so, the dietary laws, which were for the people's health and welfare, became religious laws. And together they made up the Torah, or the Jewish or Mosaic law. All right. I keep that in mind because later, when we get into the New Testament, which we won't do tonight, but uh, if you're here next week, uh, and I hope you all are, uh, we'll get into that. So, and that's one thing, this is sort of an aside, but 
whenever you learn anything about the Bible, and then you start a new project like we will next week, you can't just put that aside and say, well, I'm done with that, because you have to carry those things forward. Because they all fit together, like a Rubik's Cube, you know, or one of those uh, puzzles. I'm sure you've all seen them, you know, where it looks like just a ball, but if you pull it apart this way and that way, it comes into, you know, six or seven different pieces. Well, you might say that the Bible comes into 73 different pieces, all right? But it all fits together. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. <coughs> The promised land is right here at the bottom of the second group from the the left here. Um, The promised land was resettled. Now, this is the second settling, first by Abraham and then now by the people returning from Egypt. The promised land was resettled by the Hebrew people, now referred to as Israelites by the surrounding nations. And this was the time of the judges and the early priests and the early prophets, not the literary prophets, but the early prophets like Elisha and Elisha, okay, and ended with the crowning of a king, King Saul, not to be confused with Paul, but this is King Saul, and as it says here, God was not pleased. He warned the people that if they chose a king, they would have to abide by all of the rules and regulations that that king set up. And they said, so be it. We shall do that. So he said, okay. Now, we're getting into the third period of time. And as it says here, the third period of time, from the time roughly of King David to the Babylonian captivity, was both the most productive and destructive period in Jewish history. Productive in the sense that it produced the original written version of the Bible. The Bible was not written down until either David or Solomon encouraged it. And it was not written as sacred scripture. It was written as history. Each of the groups, and there were four different groups, and I won't go into all the details, we've covered that before a couple times, but each of the four different groups that wrote parts of the Old Testament wrote it as if it were history, with one exception. The Deuteronomy, or Deuteronomist group, all right, they were original Elders of the Jewish faith in the 8th or 9th century and lived in northern Israel or the kingdom of Israel around the town of Shechem. They realized that the kings of both the north and the south were leading the people astray and they wanted to combat that And the only way they could really do that without getting their heads locked off uh, was to put it in the voice uh, of Moses. 
Moses was revered by everybody, not obeyed necessarily, but revered by everyone. And therefore, they took all of the writings of Moses and added a great deal of their own and wrote chapters 5 through 26 of what we now have as the book of Deuteronomy. The word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek meaning for the second telling. And that's exactly what it is. It was a reshaping or a retelling of all of the rules and regulations that Moses had laid down, plus all of those that had developed in the interim. We're talking 8th or ninth century. Moses lived around the 15th century. So there was a lot of time for rules and regulations to be developed. And so these people developed these and put them in the voice of Moses and reissued them, you might say, in the book of Deuteronomy. But it was not really accepted by the northern kingdom. And as a result, the people did not return to God. And a result of that was that the northern kingdom was utterly destroyed in the year 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. Okay. The southern kingdom fared a little better because there were a couple kings, such as Josiah and Hezekiah, who tried to get the ship of state turned around and headed in the right direction. Unfortunately, uh, they did not succeed and they did not last very long. And so they eventually uh, went the same way. Uh, So what I'm saying here by by being the most uh, productive and yet the most destructive uh, period of time was because during this time period, most of the Bible that had been written up to that point was developed during this time period. Okay, Uh, It was revised many times after, and there were a few things added uh, in the fourth time period. But most of the Old Testament was written during this third time period, but most of it was written as trying to combat the evil that was brought about by the kings of that time period, primarily Ahaz and his wife Jezebel. That is the reason and the time period of the prophets. And that's why I say it was one of the most productive because it produced a lot of the writings and the material that we now find in the Old Testament, particularly the writings uh, of the literary prophets beginning with Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, and then all of the others. But it produced a great deal of uh, summaries, such as the first and second book of Samuel, the first and second book of Kings, and the book of Chronicles. All of those together uh, make up really the traditional history of the Jewish people of the ancient world. All right? So, It was very productive, but it was also very destructive because both the northern and the southern kingdoms were wiped out. Now, a remnant of the southern kingdom 
was taken to Babylon, and there they kind of uh, languored, you might say. They were not slaves. They were like indentured servants. All right? And only the people who could do the Babylonians some good were taken. So the old, the infirm, uh, little children, etc., were left behind. And it was only the farmers, uh, tradespeople, people who could be servants, uh, governesses, seamstresses, that kind of thing, were taken off. Right? But if you think about it, if all of the productive people were taken out of a country, excuse me, I'm just getting over a cold. If you think about it, if all of the productive people were taken out of a country, what would be left? The unproductive. And as a result, Jerusalem primarily, but Israel in total, both north and south, began to decay. And they were destroyed as cities, they were destroyed as entities, and so they couldn't survive. And so when the people finally did come back after approximately 50 years, they came back to virtually nothing and had to start all over. This created a lot of problems, all right? But God brought additional prophets, particularly Ezra and Nehemiah, and to some degree, Jeremiah, who was sort of on the tail end of the destructive period, to bolster these people up. Okay, So we're talking now about the fourth period of time. This was also a very productive period of time in that the prophet, or not the prophet, the priest, Ezra, took the book of Deuteronomy and added to it the first four chapters and the last um, eight or nine, whatever it is, I forget, all right, from 27 through 33. As well as he took all of the other writings and re-edited them and brought them together pretty much in the way we have them today. There was another change made later, uh, but that was something else, all right? The other thing that happened, again, a destructive thing that happened, was that the people in Babylon finally got the message that they had been wrong. You know, for a while, they sat there and couldn't understand how God let them down. They thought God was just going to do everything for them and wipe out the Babylonians and they were just going to uh, fly high. <clears throat> Instead, because of their sinfulness, God let them be taken and become indentured servants in Babylon for 50 years. But during that time, they finally broke out the book of Deuteronomy and tried to figure out why did they get there in the first place? What caused them? You know, why did God let them down? And they realized it was because of their own sinfulness that God let them down. 
Let me read. Let me read uh, from the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel was written in the second century B.C., but it was written about incidents uh, back in the Babylonian times. All right. So, for anyone that wants to follow, if you go to chapter three, uh, we'll start at verse twenty-six. And I'm not going to read all of this, but enough for you to get the idea. Blessed are you and praiseworthy, O Lord, the God of our fathers, and glorious forever is your name. For you are just in all that you have done, referring back to allowing the Israelites to be captured and taken to Babylon, all you have done. And all your deeds are faultless, all your ways are right, and all your judgments proper. You have executed proper judgments in all that you have brought about upon us and upon Jerusalem, the holy city of our fathers. By a proper judgment, you have done all of this because of our sins. For we have sinned and transgressed by departing from you, and we have done every kind of evil. Your commandments we have not heeded or observed, nor have we done as you ordered us for our good. And therefore, all you have brought upon us, all you have done to us, you have done by a proper judgment. You have handed us over to our enemies, lawless and hateful rebels, to an unjust king, the worst in all the world. Now we cannot open our mouths. We are your servants. We revere you. You have become we revere you and have we have become a shame and a reproach. For your name's sake, do not deliver us up forever or make void your covenant. He's bringing back the covenant again. Do not take away your mercy from us for the sake of Abraham, your beloved, or Isaac, or your servant, and Israel, your holy one. Israel is also the other name for Jacob. To whom you promised to multiply their offspring like the stars of heaven or the sand on the shore of the sea. For we are reduced, O Lord, beyond any other nation, brought low everywhere in the world this day because of our sins. We have in our day no prince or prophet or leader, no holocaust, sacrifice, oblation. In other words, when they were taken to Babylon, they had to leave everything behind, their traditions and their customs um, and all of their religious ceremonies. But now, with contrite heart and humble spirit, let us be received, as though it were holocausts of rams and bullocks or thousands of fat lambs. So let our sacrifice be in your presence today as we follow you unreservedly, for those who trust in you cannot be put to shame. I won't go any further, but you get the idea. They finally got the message. All right. But they went too far. The pendulum is swinging now in the opposite direction. They have taken the laws from the book of Deuteronomy and they started to worship the law. Now you might say, well, what's wrong with that? What is wrong with that? That's right. They're worshiping laws, not God. 
You know, and so you can see that in some of the stories about Jesus and his time. Okay, these people were so bent on worshiping or, or, or fulfilling the laws to the nth degree that they forgot why they were doing this. And that was not part of their routine. It was the law that came first, and God, maybe, second. All right? So, it went just the opposite. And you see that now when we get into the last part of the book of Deuteronomy. All right? So, the second, or the, the fourth period of time, again, was very productive, but it was also very destructive. The fourth period of time also saw something else that was brand new. During this period of time, they realized, because now, when they were brought back into Israel, around 539 B.C., they were still dominated by the Persians, okay, who had overrun the Babylonians. And then a little while later, the Greeks overran the Persians. And then a little while later, the Romans overran the Greeks. So they realized during this period of time that they would never again be a sovereign nation. And they never were until the, you know, gracious goodness of the United Nations made it so in 1948. But that's another story. Okay. So what did they do? They began to search because they were sincere, at least in worshiping the law, they began to search for a new promised land. And it finally dawned on them that that new promised land was not going to be physical land, but it was going to be with God in heaven. They always knew that God was in heaven. All right? That goes way back to the time of Moses. Because Moses went up and down the mountain so many times he needed an escalator. So they knew that God was always there in heaven. But they never realized up until around the 3rd or 4th century B.C. that mankind eventually would be returned to God at the end of time. So it began to dawn on them that this new promised land would come about in some period of time. Then, after they started to think about that, then they thought, well, now, who's going to lead us to this new promised land? And that took a while of thinking, but gradually, if it was something that was coming to unite the people with God, it had to be somebody from God to do that, because no earthly person could eventually do that. And so the whole concept of the Messiah came into being, but not until around the second century B.C. So the whole idea of heaven and the Messiah, somebody to lead them back into this new promised land, developed very close to the end of these four periods of time. Now, let me give you one other point. In this fourth period of time is when the word Jew was originated. 
and not in any derogatory way. Prior to this time, back as far as the time of Jacob living in Palestine before the people went to Egypt in the first place, they were known as Israelites. Jacob's name was changed by God himself to Israel. And as you know, and we've told you this many times in the past, any time when God dictated the person's name before he or she was born or changed their name later in life, it was because those that person or those people would uh, be responsible for a very important aspect of God's plan of salvation. All right. Abraham and his wife Sarah is the first example. All right. Abraham's original name was Abram. All right. And his wife's name was Sarai. And it's not much of a change, but nevertheless, it is a change. And it's very clearly written out uh, in the book of, of uh, Genesis. Okay. <clears throat> now, the people all the time that they were in Egypt, and even when they came back for a long period of time, and even when they went to Babylon as indentured servants, they were referred to as Israelites because they lived in the land of Israel. The, the ites part of it always refers to somebody who came from a specific land. <coughs> in the Acts of the Apostles, uh, there is uh, the scene where in, on Pentecost, people from all over the uh, Roman world of that time, and it talks about the Jebusites and the, you know all of this ites business. Well, that's what the Hebrew people were known as, the Israelites. But when they came back from, Is- from Babylon, they all settled in the province of Judah, where Jerusalem was the center. And for a while, they were known as Judahites. And eventually, that was sort of narrowed down to Jew. So the word Jew does not come from Jerusalem, as many people think. It comes from the province of Judah, all right, or the state of Judah. So, it's a minor thing, but at least it helps you to kind of put things in the proper context, all right? So, this kind of covers the four periods of Old Testament history. There's a lot of other details I could have gone into, (coughs) but I think you got the message. Any questions on any of this so far? You all got it down, eh? Okay. All right. Uh, <clears throat> quiz coming up in about half hour. All right. So now what I'd like to do is go to chapter 27. Chapter 27 is the first of the chapters that supposedly was written after the return of the Israelites from Babylon. Now we'll call them Jews, all right? And as I said, once they settled down, rebuilt the temple, 
to the best of their ability, not quite to the glory of Solomon, but nevertheless they did rebuild it. They did rebuild the city, not again to the glory that it was before, but nevertheless uh, they tried to reestablish themselves. And they did so using the book of Deuteronomy as their law code. All right. The rest of the Torah was okay, was incidental to them. It filled in a lot of the details, but it was Deuteronomy that was the most important. Again, they worship, and they still do today, the first five books of the Old Testament, which they call the Torah, or meaning the law, all right? And it embodies the 613 rules that the Jewish people referred to as the law, all right? When we get into teaching and, and discussing uh, St. Paul beginning next week, you'll see where that created a problem in itself just by recognizing uh, the difference between what some people called the law, the Jewish Mosaic law, or laws in general. And that creates a little bit of a problem which I think is kind of interesting, uh, but it still exists today. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to go into a lot of the detail because chapters 27 through 33 uh, have a tremendous amount of minutiae. I'm sure you've all read it and just have it in your mind uh, and could probably recite it verbatim. <clears throat> sure. But... There are some very interesting points that I want to make, primarily supporting what I've already said uh, tonight, but perhaps in a little different way. For example, right in the beginning of the commentary on page 80, on page 80, at the very bottom of the page, it says, Now the Deuteronomist turned to the future. For the law to have its beneficial effect, every generation will have to remember the law and its stipulations and be prepared to commit itself to that law. Well, you see, that sets a problem right there. When you commit yourself to observing laws you are forgetting humanity, you are forgetting God. It is like you obey every single automobile law that there is. You do, don't you? Sure you do. Uh-huh. Yeah. How many of us come to a rolling stop at a stop sign, you know? Okay. Anyways. These people went to the extreme now, to the point where if it wasn't part of the law, they either did not do it or they went in another direction. And you'll see that this is the basis for St. Paul's original exuberance and zeal in performing the persecutions that he took up and did in the first part of uh, what we'll be talking about next week. Okay. But, 
You can't commit yourself to laws. You have to understand what the objective of those laws are, where did they come from. And if they fit what you are trying to do, that's fine, but you have to, in this case, you have to have a relationship with God himself before those laws can become effective. And before they are meaningful. I always wonder about people who talk about their obligation to go to Mass on Sunday. Are they going to Mass on Sunday to fulfill an obligation? Or are they going to Mass to worship? The first is totally meaningless and of little value if it doesn't include worship. You cannot go to Mass, be part of the Mass, solely because of fear of of, uh, committing a sin if you don't go. That is totally of little value, worthless. Okay? You should go to Mass to worship God, primarily, and thank Him for the benefits that He has given you. All Masses are thanksgiving offerings because of God's infinite goodness and mercy shown to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay. So, that's one of the prime examples that we're trying to point out here. That you can't commit yourself to laws or obligations. You have to find out what is the objective, what is the purpose. Down at the bottom of page 81, very important uh, statement here. <clears throat> says, in the last uh, three or four lines, here it is quite clear that Deuteronomy holds that the basis of the divine human relationship, that is, our relationship with Jesus Christ or God through Christ, is an unmerited act of divine grace. It is the Holy Spirit calling us to Mass on Sunday to worship. It is because the Israelites have been chosen as the people of God that they are to obey the commandments. It's not the other way around. Okay? But they finally got the message. I'm going to skip over because a lot of these curses and blessings are somewhat obsolete today. Um, But if you go over to page 84, down at the bottom in the commentary, it says, For the Deuteronomist, many of these curses have already become a reality. Remember, they're writing many of these things after the fact. They're writing them as if they were coming out originally in the voice or the mouth of Moses, but much of this is written after the fact, and getting the people to see where they have gone astray. Remember, these people now, back in the 7th and 8th century, were really following pagan 
leaders, idolatrous, and so forth. All right. <clears throat> they are trying to recommit the people to obedience for their future depends upon faithful obedience. And that's true. Their future depended on it and they reneged. They did not recommit themselves and therefore their future was uh, total destruction of the north and uh, almost uh, total destruction of the south. Okay. <laughs> If you go over to the next page, uh, right in the middle of page 85, where it says exile on the left side, said, the Lord will bring you and your king, whom you have set over you, uh, to a nation which you and your fathers have not known. And therefore, you will serve strange gods of wood and stone. And that is the basis for the book of Daniel. The, the whole idea is that Daniel was forced, or they tried to force him, into worshipping a statue that Nebuchadnezzar uh, built of himself. The statue had a head of, bra a head of gold, a neck of uh, silver, and various metals, but as they got closer and closer to the feet, uh, the metals or the material became weaker and weaker until it got to the uh, feet and the toes, and they became clay and wood. All right. What it is, is they represented the five different uh, kingdoms that Babylon was involved with, or the Israelites were involved with in Babylon. First Egypt, then Babylon, then the Medes, and the Persians, and then the Greeks. Okay. But when the Greeks, after Alexander the Great died at a very young age, around 33, I think it was, his kingdom, which spread all the way from North Africa, all the way across the Mideast uh, today, uh, was sort of broken up into ten different little kingdoms. And that, again, is the basis for the book of Daniel. That Those ten kingdoms represent the ten toes of the statue. Okay, and they were made of wood, and of course, they would will not adhere to clay, and the feet were so weak it could not hold the bronze and the gold and the iron, etc., and the statue collapsed, which was an analogy of the whole kingdom of Babylon. Um, if you go over to the next page, it has exile again. This is page 86 on the right side. It says, just as the Lord once took delight in making you grow and prosper, that is, in Egypt, so will you now take delight in ruining and destroying you. He will, not, he will now take delight in ruining and destroying you. And you will be plucked out of the land that you are now entering uh, to occupy it. So, you see, this was written afterwards, so the writer is not writing a prophecy because he knows it already happened. But when it's presented as if it came from Moses, 
then it looks like prophecy. And they'll say, aha, he's right. Aha. Well, how could he be wrong when he's, you know. But these are the kinds of things that you have to read and sort of keep in mind and pick up as we go along. <laughs> Let's go down to the commentary on 86. It says, one common thread running throughout the blessings and the curses is how these are related to the land. First and foremost, blessings means fertility of both the people and their land. Remember, I said the covenant that God made first with Abraham and then renewed with uh, Moses and then with David and so forth and so on down the line was first of all descendants, land, and protection. Okay, So land was very important to these people because remember, Abraham was a nomad. In other words, a person or a family that traveled around uh, finding fertile pasture land for their flocks. Their flocks was their source of living. All right. And so they had to travel to find pasture land for these flocks. So they were nomadic people. But God wanted them to settle in a given spot, the promised land. And so he converted or changed these people from being nomads to being agrarian uh, and set it up differently. But nevertheless, the covenant was primarily a land-based agreement. Okay. Now, after Christ, that changes. But we'll get into that a little later. Okay. <laughs> well, let's go over to page 88, right in the middle. <clears throat> On the left side, it says, right in the middle there, but it is not with you alone that I am making this covenant. Under this sanction of a curse, it is just as much with those who are not here among us today, in other words, those in the future, as it is with those of us who are now here present before our Lord, our God. Okay. So, he's talking about the covenant is made with everybody down through history. Unfortunately, it was withdrawn in the year 70 A.D. after the destruction of Jerusalem because of the rejection of the Jews, rejection, I'm sorry, of Christ by the Jews. All right? God must have said in his own way, enough is enough. You went through the golden calf thing. You destroyed you, meaning the Israelite people of the north. Destroyed their own country through the help of the Assyrians. The south destroyed their own country by the help of the Babylonians simply because they refused to accept the teachings and live by the law of God. All right? They ignored God altogether. Now, the reason I think this is so important is because we see this exact same thing happening today in our country. Our government and our leaders um, 
all of those people that you sort of look up to, although I can't do that anymore, um, celebrities, sports people, all of them are disregarding the teachings of God and the church. And we are fast approaching the slippery slope to damnation if we don't turn this ship around in some way. Now, that sounds like a lot of gloom and doom, but keep in mind that God is always open for a return to his ways of doing things, but he has limits, and he has certain criteria for doing that. Um, And so we have to take it upon ourselves to get this ship back in order. (laughs) Excuse me. Down at the bottom of page 88, here's a major warning against the people of that period of time, but it applies to us today also. A warning against false worship. It says, The great commandment of the law is Israel's obligation to serve God alone. In other words, the Shema, the first and greatest commandments. Uh, O Lord, thou art God, thou art one. And it goes on and on about how great God is and how we should uh, serve him and worship him and so forth. The thing is, they say it, but they don't do it. It says here, the great commandment of the law is Israel's obligation to serve God alone. Moses repeats this central command. Unusual, usually when Moses mentions Egypt, it is to remind Israel of its wondrous deliverance from slavery there. However, Egypt serves as a model of the kind of false worship Israel is to avoid. The people will be tempted to abandon the service of God for that of foreign deities. If any of the people succumb to such a temptation, they may expect the severest of penalties. There can be no compromise whatever regarding the exclusive commitment God requires of Israel. And it's the same with us today. God must come first in our life, in all respects. Our life must be adjusted to his ways for us to have a relation, a true relationship with him. Anything else is just false and useless. Because if you go over to the next page, It says, verse 24, And the answer will be, Because they forsook the covenant which the Lord, the God of their fathers, had made with them, when he brought them out of the land of Egypt. And then when he brought them out of the land of Babylon, they just went in the opposite direction, but the end result was the same. And they went and served other gods and adored them. God's whom they did not know and whom they did not uh, let fall to their lot. I'm sorry, and whom he had not let fall to their lot. Down below it says, the real truth is that Israel's downfall was caused by its own failures to observe the stipulation of God's covenant. The consequences of these failures were defeat 
and exile. Down below, it says, this is right at the bottom of page 89, human beings, and this is kind of important, human beings are not only limited in their ability to grasp fully the mystery of the divine, but the human will, the human will, cannot make the kind of commitment that eliminates the possibility of unfaithfulness. In other words, we cannot say, I'm going to be totally faithful to God from now on. Unless the Holy Spirit is with you. Because you cannot do it alone. (laughs) Satan and all of his evils uh, aside, they are far stronger. And for anybody that attempts to do this on his or her own, Satan will go after them much more so than normal. So the only way you can devote yourself truly to God is with and through the Holy Spirit. And here's here's a kind of a good explanation. If we go to page 91. The choice before Israel. Here then. <coughs> Excuse me. Here then. I have today set before you life and prosperity or death and doom. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I enjoin on you today, loving him, you see, that's very important, your God which I enjoin on you today, loving him and walking in his ways, that's the prime criteria, (laughs) and keeping his commandments, statutes and decrees, you will live and grow numerous, and the Lord your God will bless you, in the land that you are entering to occupy. If, however, you turn away your hearts and will not listen, but are led astray and adore and serve other gods, I tell you now that you will certainly perish, and you will not have a long life on the land which you are crossing the Jordan to enter. Now, the Deuteronomist, or the priestly group who actually wrote this part of this book, is writing sort of preaching to the choir, so to speak, uh, because these things have already happened. But he's trying to put it back into the mouth of Moses to give it some emphasis, to give it some really depth that people will sit up and take notice. Unfortunately, as I said, some did, but they went too far. They went beyond and worshipped laws rather than God, as it says right here. So, in some ways, they contradict their own writing. Down in the middle of this page, 91, says the life and death alternatives are broader than may be apparent to the contemporary reader. Life refers to the sphere of human activity under the protection of the divine. The original concept of the first uh, covenant. 
It says, life refers to the sphere of human activity under the protection of the divine, and death refers to that sphere of human activity which is devoid of the divine presence. We would say in our modern language, the first is a spiritual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Okay. The second one is doing even good things, but for the wrong reason. Totally without any concept of whether God is approving what you are doing or not. Because we might be doing something good and saying, oh God, I don't have time for you. I've got so many important things to do for the church that uh, I'll worry about you later. And the person goes off thinking, you know, they're the pillar of the church uh, or whatever they're doing. And God's going to reward them for it later. But if God wants them to do something else, and they say, I'm sorry, I don't have time for you. What is it? And that's what's happening right here. So when it talks about life and death, you have to think about it in spiritual terms. All right. Remember, that was one of the mistakes that Adam and Eve made. Um, there was the tree in the Garden of Eden called the Tree of uh, Life. And from it <coughs> was this great fruit and so forth. And, of course, the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and says that you will, you know, live and so forth. And all of that has to be taken as an allegory to mean spiritual life or spiritual death, right? Not physical death. It's And all of the Bible should really have that in the back of your mind. It is written on two levels, the spiritual level and the earthly level. And if you just look at it from the earthly point of view, and that's what so many people try to do, just pick up the Bible and try to read it in today's understanding of those words. And I think you've already seen how that just doesn't work to get the true meaning. There's so many words in the Bible that do not or did not mean when they were written what they mean today. Or the meaning has much uh is a totally different understanding than, than what we have today. So, you gotta be extremely careful. <laughs> um, let's go over to page 94. Here's another sort of interesting, pardon the pun, artifact. <clears throat> The law placed in the Ark. The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was a gold box that was developed while the Israelites were wandering in the desert. And it was to house the the tablets of the commandments. It was also to house uh, the staff of Aaron after he died and a couple jars of the manna. But that was destroyed. Well, let's back up. That was used as a representation 
of God's presence among us, or God's presence among the Jewish people, from the time of Moses to the time of the Babylonian captivity. It was housed in Solomon's temple, in the Holy of Holies, and that is what was worshipped. Again, I'm not saying that that was right, but that was what was done. The ark was in there containing the scrolls, uh, not scrolls, the tablets on which the commandments were written, and I assume probably other books and notes as well. But that was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. Uh, when the Babylonians destroyed the temple as well as uh, the Jerusalem. Even though you might read or see on television some uh, very interesting story that takes you below the uh, Solomon's uh, temple or what's left of it and saying that there's a cave down there that's going to contain the Ark of the Covenant and they've been searching for that for 3,000 years and still haven't found it, you know, with all modern equipment. No way, no way. It was long gone, okay? It says, when Moses had finished writing out on a scroll the words of the law in their entirety, presumably this whole book, okay? He gave the Levites who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord this order. Take the scroll of the law and put it beside the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that there it may be a witness against you For I already know how rebellious and stiff-necked you will be. Why, even now, while I am alive among you, and you have been rebels against the Lord, how much more then, after I am dead, and therefore therefore assemble all your tribal elders and your officials before me, that I may speak these words for them to hear. And then he goes on with chapter 32, all of these various blessings um, that you can take time to read. But this, again, is written after the fact. This is not written by Moses because Moses is long gone uh, by this time. But what it is is a major warning. Now, it's interesting that what do you say the Jewish people worship today? Anyone got a good idea? The Torah, right. They are still worshipping laws rather than God. Okay. And in their synagogues, no more temple, remember. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD, never to be rebuilt. What you might see is Temple Bethel and and so forth. um, But they are not temples. Those are synagogues. The difference between a temple and a synagogue is that the synagogue is a house of prayer. No sacrifice is worship is offered there. <coughs> Incense is burned, but it is a house of prayer. Okay. No more sacrifice anywhere. Remember, animal sacrifice died out with the destruction of the temple. <coughs> For two reasons. The destruction of the temple in 70 AD, was recognized as the affirmation of God's withdrawal of the first covenant. Because the Jewish people, in general, 
some exceptions, of course. <coughs> the Jewish people rejected Christ. After the Father sent all of the prophets, Moses, David, Abraham, and a number of others, Elijah and Elisha, etc., all pointing to Christ, the leaders had to have known who the Messiah was going to be or be able to recognize him when he came on the scene, and they refused. They killed all of the prophets. They killed Christ. The father said, enough is enough. So he destroys Jerusalem through the aid of the Romans. <clears throat> destroys the temple. The significance of the temple was that was the Jewish people's concept of God's presence among them. Okay? The ark had been that before in the old uh, Solomon temple. In the temple built by Herod the Great, <clears throat> that contained the Holy of Holies, which was solely uh, furnished with five scrolls, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament. And that's what they worshipped. They continued to worship laws rather than worship God. Now, there's nothing wrong with laws as long as they are considered a guide to fulfilling the will of the Father. In the same way in the Catholic Church today, or the Christian churches. There's nothing, we need laws. We need structure. You can see what happens when there is no structure, and that's how why we have something like 20,000 other non-Catholic Christian organizations or denominations when you don't have structure. But the structure is there to fulfill the will of God, not the other way around. We are not patted on the back and say, oh, you're a good boy or a good girl today. Come into my heaven because you fulfilled all the laws. No. Christ has said, be prepared because if we don't have a relationship, I don't know you. And that's the end of a couple of the major stories within the Bible. Right? The story of the uh, five foolish virgins and the five uh, wise ones. That's all about preparation for yourself to get to heaven through knowing the bridegroom, meaning Christ. All right? But at the end of that, because the foolish virgins had gone off to get more oil for their lamps and so forth, when they returned, <clears throat> the door had been locked because the bridegroom had already arrived and that was the custom and tradition of that culture. That once the bridegroom arrives, no one else can come in. And so even though these uh, foolish virgins or as in some translations they use the word bridesmaids, uh, <clears throat> knock on the door and want to get in, he said, I'm sorry, but I don't know you. And that is an indication of 
you have to have a relationship with Christ. To do otherwise leaves you sort of out of the cold. <laughs> and that is what we're talking about now. And the whole idea of the Jewish people losing that covenant was that the door was open then to all people who accepted Christ and his teachings. They became the new church, the new people of God, the new chosen people. All right, And it was open to anyone and everyone. Remember the Jewish um, faith still is very exclusive. I mean, you have to be a Jew or you have to convert to Judaism and follow the Jewish laws. All right. Uh, and there are many other criteria. <clears throat> but the Catholic faith, the Christian faiths are open to anyone and everyone. There is no exclusion. It's totally all-inclusive. So, we've come pretty much to the end of our study of the book of Deuteronomy. Now, the one thing that I want you to keep in mind is that you don't fall into some of the same traps that these people did way back in the 8th or 9th century B.C., or, conversely, in the <coughs> latter part of the 5th century. Okay, because they both ended up wrong. In the story of the prodigal son, we all sort of focus on uh, the young son who went off and uh, had a gay old time. <coughs> I use that word loosely. Uh, had a very uh, good time. Uh, spent all of his money, etc., etc. But we don't look at the other son. The other son was just as wrong as the one that went off and had a good time. Why? Because even though he did everything that the father wanted him to do, he did it for the wrong reason. There was no love there. There was no intentions of doing it for his father because of his father. He did it because it was the rule. So if you look at it, they are both wrong. And the moral of that story is, we are one son one day, we can be the other son another day. So, where are we going? They both have to come together and recognize who the father is and then work to please him. And in doing so, the father will shower his love, his generosity, his possessions on them. But the way it is now, they're both losers. Both sons are. So, by reading Deuteronomy, we want you to make sure that you don't follow into any of those traps. And that where possible, you are obligated, really, to help rewrite this ship of state 
that we're in, this nation. We've got to start doing something as a church, as a parish, as a city, whatever, to start making it known that we as Catholics object to much of the immorality that we see all around us. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, Frank brings up a, a, a good point. Uh, <coughs> the, the time of the Deuteronomist in the 5th century, uh, they adhered to the laws to the nth degree, and as Frank points out, today uh, all of the politicians and the lawyers are looking for loopholes uh, to get around or through the laws and not having to obey them. So, you know, which is worse? Uh, it's six of one, half a dozen of the other. Good point, though. Yes, never thought about that. Connie? Jews, as, uh, yes. Particularly uh, up through the four periods of time, you don't see personal prayer being fostered. That did develop afterwards, more or less because they saw how Christians began to pray in a personal way. But Jewish people, up until this time, uh, did not develop or engage in private prayer to God. In fact, that is why the apostles asked Jesus very specifically to teach them to pray. Um, Because they didn't know how. They didn't really know. See, prayers, for example, in the Old Testament, particularly the Psalms, those were all for large congregations, large assemblies, large celebrations. They were not intended as personal prayer, even though they read today, in many cases, as if they're personal prayer, but they were not. They were all done for ceremonies and liturgies. Jews do not believe in heaven, uh, only half correct, meaning some do and some don't. And that was true for thousands of years. Uh, You might say, and there's an interesting argument in the Acts of the Apostles where Paul is accused um, by the Sadducees for bringing up the idea of resurrection. But when some Pharisees who do believe in life after death joined them, he got the two to start arguing against each other and he walks away. Kind of an interesting little story. But I have to just give you my very favorite pun here. The Pharisees did believe in life after death. And some of the Jewish people today do. The Sadducees did not believe in life after death. And that was why they were sad, you see. (laughs) I think on that note we better end. Name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Lord, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for allowing us to complete this course and in such a fine fashion, meaning that there's no hard questions and we had a little bit of laugh. So we thank you for this time together. 
And we thank you and praise you in all things. In Jesus' name.